Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a House Republican budget that Speaker McCarthy barely got enough votes for from his side to pass 217 to 215, which is dead on arrival and has nothing to do with raising the debt limit, but is being used as leverage to exact draconian cuts in an already inadequate social safety net. We will discuss McCarthy's call for fiscal responsibility after successive tax cuts for the rich that have ballooned the debt, while he's offering up a budget that is cruel and unnecessary and won't make a debt in the debt that targets the poorest and most vulnerable America's children who had nothing to do with running up the debt. Joining us is Jeff Madrick, a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and a former economics columnist for the New York Times. He is the editor of Challenge magazine, and a visiting professor of humanities at the Cooper Union. His books include Age of Greed, The Triumph of Finance and the Decline of America, 1970 to the Present, and Seven Bad Ideas, How Mainstream Economists Have Damaged America and the World. And his latest book is Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. Then we'll examine the Washington Declaration that emerged from the White House meeting yesterday with South Korea's President Yoon, who was fated with a state dinner at which he displayed his karaoke skills singing American Pie. We will discuss the nature of the nuclear guarantee South Korea got to allay the call for self-nuclearization in response to North Korea's growing nuclear threats. Joining us is Sung Yoon Lee, a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, a National Asia Research Fellow and a faculty associate at the U.S.-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. He has testified as an expert witness in the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee hearings on North Korea policy, and his forthcoming book, Out Soon, is The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo-jong, The Most Powerful Woman in North Korea. We will discuss his article at The Conversation, U.S.-South Korea nuclear weapons deal, what you need to know. Then finally, following yesterday's call between Xi Jinping and Ukraine's President Zelensky, in which the Chinese leader offered to send a peace delegation to Kiev, we will assess how serious China's commitment is to get Russia to the table and how long the war will go on short of a decisive blow to Russia's already weakened military from the upcoming Ukrainian offensive. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, How China Could Save Putin's War in Ukraine, the logic and consequences of Chinese military support for Russia. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jeff Madrick, a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and the former economics columnist for the New York Times. He is the editor of Challenge magazine and a visiting professor of humanities at the Cooper Union. And his books include Age of Greed, The Triumph of Finance and the Decline of America, 1970 to the Present, and Seven Bad Ideas, How Mainstream Economists Have Damaged America and the World. And his latest book is Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. Welcome to Background Briefing, 
Jeff Madrick. Thank you, Ian. It's good to speak to you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, yesterday, Speaker McCarthy managed to get the House to pass his budget just by a whisker. And it is a really sad kind of document of capricious and unnecessary cruelty to the poorest of Americans in the name of balancing the budget and fiscal responsibility. And, of course, none of this has anything to do with the debt limit. You know, the debt limit is an entirely separate issue from the budget. But, of course, the debt limit is being used as a hostage in order to exact the kind of cuts that uh, McCarthy is putting forth, which mean uh, freezing spending levels at last year for the next 10 years, which would basically mean a massive cut in social programs. So obviously it's dead on arrival. The Senate won't take it up, but uh, it is a negotiating position. So what's your sense of whether any of this will happen here in terms of a 14% cut in the budget and targeting health care and uh, climate uh, laws and uh, food stamps for the poorest Americans. And again, as I was about to say, as you've just said, your specialty is, or your last book is about the poverty amongst children. Well, if you cut food stamps, you're starving children. It's a horrible policy. It's a horrible uh, uh, statement about the nature of America right now that you think you can get away with this. We want, there's no reason to cut spending in order to cut to raise the debt limit. No reason at all. But the idea that the Republicans would be willing to be so cruel on social policy to let people go hungry, to let kids go hungry, to let kids go without uh, textbooks, to get let kids be unable to collect or participate in Medicaid for their families. It's just uh, ugly as it's hard to imagine that America could be this insensitive, hard to imagine. And that's uh, this guy McCarthy pretends he's on the side of angels. You want him, it would be nice if he actually met an angel or wouldn't recognize him or her, I guess. I don't know what more I can say, but it's a shocking twist of uh, ugly fate for this nation. But if it's, basically blaming McCarthy and all these other Republicans for being heartless. Obviously, that's well-placed. But I don't think it answers the problem, does it, in the sense that they must be doing it, whether they are cruel and horrible people or not. They're doing it because they think their constituents support it. So is this a reflection of maybe up to half of America who somehow thinks... I think that the that the poor people in this country are freeloaders and they're not going to pay their taxes in order to support a bunch of freeloaders? Is, is that the mentality out there? I think it is, sadly, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit. How can we be so insensitive as a nation? We have, by almost all measures, the highest child poverty rate in the developed rich world, the highest, and we're the richest nation. How can people tolerate that? How can we say it's a bunch of lazy parents who are trying to build the system? Where does that come from? It's absolutely not true. Most Medicaid recipients, and Medicaid is a federal health program for the poor, most Medicaid recipients work. They actually work. The idea that people are scoffing that they're just not working because they get some social spending is ridiculous. They want to work. If they can't work, they think that they certainly deserve some help. And I don't know why America can't face that. I just don't know why, except out of greed and, frankly, some measure of racism uh, and some, some kind of hatred for the poor, regardless of race. Well, along with having the highest rate of child poverty amongst the wealthy nations, the United States is, has the, the worst and most inadequate social safety net amongst the more advanced nations. So the idea that we have anything 
in terms of social democracy or you know a social safety net compared to European and Australia and New Zealand and other countries Israel you name it and Japan South Korea it's just shocking on those terms alone it is shocking and you know one doesn't know what to do with it I I raise it as often as I can I have a podcast that I'm doing with a former NBC anchor we just began on child poverty it's called Invisible Americans after the book I wrote which had some influence in Washington and passing the child uh, tax credit which reduced child poverty by nearly half an astonishing accomplishment for a indeed. public policy indeed and but they then, got rid of it they well that was uh, that was Joe Manchin wasn't it if you pick an individual out yes it was Joe Manchin but Congress got rid of the darn thing. It was as simple as that. Uh, they said it cost too much. They said people were getting away with it. We need work requirements. We need cut to cut SNAP, the food uh, program. I just don't know what they think happens in the, in the world. They, are they all that privileged that they have no sense that they are privileged? Maybe, but, uh, it's uh, enormous to say it's ir- there's not a word strong enough that means irresponsible to explain what's going on in America today. Well, Speaker McCarthy said about his budget that he introduced yesterday that it will put the United States on a path to fiscal responsibility. Let's hear Nonsense. from the Democratic leader of the House, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, in response to that notion. Mr. Speaker. What is the Republican record? President Reagan comes into office and the first thing that he does is massive tax cuts for the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected and explodes the deficit. President George W. Bush comes into office 2001, 2003, massive tax cuts for the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected, two failed wars, a deep recession explodes the deficit. President Trump comes into office. First thing he does in 2017, massive tax cuts for the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected. The GOP tax scam. 83% of the benefits going to the wealthiest 1% in America explodes the deficits. How dare you lecture America about fiscal responsibility when the record shows that Democrats are the party of job creation and reducing deficits, and Republicans are the party of tax cuts for the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected, and exploding the deficit. So we're not going to stand here and allow you to lecture us about fiscal responsibility. What this is, is an effort to try to extract deep, painful cuts on everyday Americans. Yeah, I'm delighted he brought up Reagan because that is where it started. Even homelessness in California, as you well know, started under Reagan, started to explode. And you get people even like Coffee Joe, what's the fellow on MSNBC, Morning Joe, praising Reagan right and left. And people think this guy is a liberal. It started with Reagan. Hakeem is right. So is this then a, a moral problem more than a political problem? Is there, is there something wrong, you know, in terms of our better angels? Has too much of the country become cold-hearted? I think so. I think there is something wrong. I think our political problem is a moral problem. We don't think we have a responsibility to other people. We think everybody has it fairly easy. It's it's a horrible uh, attitude towards other people. In my book, at the end of my book, I write something that I think these people will find uh, probably uh, uh, abnormal in itself. I say you have to have faith in people, even poor people. We won't get anywhere if you don't have faith because, you know, a lot of these social programs are criticized because people take uh, advantage of them. They don't work. Uh, they spe- they allegedly spend the money 
on themselves that they get for programs because they have children. That latter fact is absolutely wrong. The data are very clear that when people, when parents get money for their kids, they spend it on constructive programs for their kids. Where there are child tax credits in Europe, it's very clear the parents spend the money on the kids, not on themselves. And people like Joe Manchin just ignore the facts. They just say point blank, they'll spend it on themselves and they don't look at the data. And the data is shockingly constructive and heartwarming, not heartless. But isn't in terms of the data, aren't most of the families and the parents of kids living in poverty and now facing food stamp cuts, aren't a lot of these, if not the majority of these families, a single parent, a mother? You know, I don't, I don't know if the majority are single parents. It could be, but so mm. what? You know, does that mean they don't need food? Well, that's that, what I'm saying. Uh, You've only got one breadwinner, and she's got to get a job, and she doesn't have have childcare, and you're going to take away the money she has in order to feed the kids. That's unbelievably cruel. What can I say? How many times can I say cruel? <laughs> right, right. Well, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'd read somewhere that they're among the families. It's a huge percentage of the families with children in poverty just have a have a single mother as the head of household and the main breadwinner. But Mothers that, uh, take the biggest hit. There's no question about that. And hmm. therefore, their kids take the biggest hit. So I just, uh, you know, I tend to be speechless. That's why I devoted so I've been working on the child poverty issue since 2015. I was one of the first and maybe even the first to recommend and insist that we have a a child tax credit without conditions. You don't have to have conditions to qualify. And even the progressive academics didn't believe we could pass such a thing when I started. And I'm sure there were a few other people who started in 2015. In fact, I did an op-ed piece for the New York Times saying just this. And uh, so it was very gratifying that eventually most academics got aboard the idea of a tax credit and uh, an unconditional child tax credit. And it passed. Eventually it passed. And here we are. They had it. It proved it worked. Cut child poverty by about 40 percent and more for some. And uh, uh, they still got rid of it. Joe Manchin on his high horse individually did more than anyone else to get rid of it. He's but running for all. He's got a tough re-election. Yeah, He's, well, you know. Jim Justice is no picnic, the guy that's running against him. So, Yeah, uh, you're right. But the point you're making, and we've got to close now, is that you got the child tax credit through, it passed, it worked, and then they cut it. But it worked, so it could come back. It worked. It worked yeah. for kids. Right. For kids who are not responsible for their own poverty. Well, Jeff Madrick, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's nice to speak with you, and Keep up all the important work you do. Well, thank you, Jeff. And again, I've been speaking with Jeff Madrick, who's a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and a former economics columnist for the New York Times. He is editor of Challenge Magazine and the Visiting Professor of Humanities at the Cooper Union, and his books include Asia of Greed, The Triumph of Finance and the Decline of America, 1970 to the Present, and Seven Bad Ideas, How Mainstream Economists Have Damaged America and the World, and his latest book is Invisible Americans, The Tragic Cost of Child Poverty. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Washington Declaration that emerged from the White House meeting yesterday with South Korea's President Yoon.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sung Yoon Lee, who's a professor of international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, a National Asia Research Fellow and a faculty associate at the U.S.-Japan program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. He has testified as an expert witness in the U.S. House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee hearings on North Korea policy, and his forthcoming book out soon is The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo-jung, The Most Powerful Woman in North Korea. And he has an article at The Conversation, U.S.-South Korea Nuclear Weapons Deal, What You Need to Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sung Yun Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Yesterday, the South Korean President Yoon visited the White House and had a state dinner last night at at which he showed off his karaoke skills, singing Bye Bye Miss American Pie. But on a more serious note, President Biden said in uh, the White House uh, Rose Garden, he said yesterday, a nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies and partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. So clearly the South Koreans wanted something to counter the growing North Korean threat. So do you think they got what they want? Well, I think so. It's not reasonable for South Korea to assume that the United States would come out and say something like, "Okay, we will redeploy tactical nuclear weapons on South Korean soil, which per agreement between the two countries in 1991, the U.S. removed hundreds of tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea that the U.S. had maintained since 1958. So I think this is a reasonable compromise agreement between the two allies. South Korea wanted something more than the usual, quote, reaffirmation of the alliance, quote, the alliance is ironclad. South Korea got a lot more than that. And the United States got what it wanted, which was a reassurance from President Yoon himself that South Korea is not going nuclear. Well, apparently in the 1970s, South Korea did develop its own nuclear program, which the U.S. stopped and then and then gave them the nuclear guarantee, and the South Koreans then joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That's right. So if South Korea were one day to secretly develop nuclear weapons, or even openly, South Korea would join North Korea as the second nation in the world to have acceded to the non-proliferation regime and to have withdrawn from it. So, uh, you know, that raises concerns, of course, in many nations uh, around the world. What does that mean for the non-proliferation regime? Would that uh, stir Japan to go nuclear itself? How would China, Russia and North Korea respond to South Korea's nuclearization? So for now, I think this was the right balance. But there's been pressure within the South Korean population to self-nuclearize, hasn't there? Indeed. um, I think North Korea's relentless provocations over 100 missile tests since January last year, uh, all this has really stiffened the South Korean public opinion. And according to various polls over the past several years, Uh, Well over the majority, now close to even 80% of South Koreans say that South Korea needs to go nuclear. How can South Korea depend on the United States when U.S. cities like Seattle, L.A., Washington, D.C. itself lie now within the range of North Korea's nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic weapons, missiles? And the latest missile test uh, that the North Koreans conducted was it was a solid-fueled intercontinental ballistic missile, which apparently could reach the United States, possibly beyond its Pacific coast. That's right, and, and it would be very hard to detect that ahead of the launch. It's true, because liquid-fueled rockets have a lot of infrastructure, and they're easy to detect, and they take a long time to fill them up. So what then is going on here? I mean, we know that the United States just sent a nuclear, ballistic missile nuclear submarine to South Korea, and one Trident nuclear submarine has enough nuclear warheads on it to completely destroy the entire country of North Korea. But that doesn't necessarily deter Kim Jong-un, does it? I mean, all he's got to show for his regime, which needless to say our previous president, Donald Trump just recently praised him in an interview with Tucker Carlson 
saying he was top of the line, a genius, a great guy. I mean, my God, what would happen if Trump came back? Well, President Trump floated the notion of withdrawing all U.S. troops from South Korea. Now, it's not the number of troops, U.S. soldiers who are stationed in South Korea that has deterred North Korean adventurism. It's um, it's not the sheer numbers. It's the fact that they are there. How many? Almost 30,000 U.S. soldiers. What does that mean? Well, they're standing in harm's way. And if North Korea were to invade the South, then American troops, I'm sorry to say, will be among the first to perish, to be sacrificed along with their South Korean counterparts. And what does that mean? That means the U.S. has a very compelling incentive, perhaps even to march right into Pyongyang and end the Kim regime. So this is a symbolic commitment to really defend South Korea at great risks. And if the U.S. were to then withdraw these troops, you know, Agreements are, in the end, paper agreements. Yes, there is this wonderful treaty, but the U.S. might have second thoughts if North Korea were to be aggressive. So, yeah, if President Trump is re-elected or somebody of his mind, then I think South Koreans would feel much less secure. So we know that the U.S. has asked South Korea for a half a million 155-millimeter howitzer shells presumably to be shipped to Ukraine because Ukraine is running out of ammunition all across its 800-mile front with uh, in the war it has with Russia. So, And, of course, there's those recent leaks coming from that 21-year-old airman did expose concerns expressed by South Korean uh, military and intelligence officials about shipping ammunition to Ukraine via Poland. What's the latest on the extent to which South Korea is helping Ukraine? Well, many people around the world are familiar with BTS, the fabulous South Korean boy band, um, South Korean pop culture on Netflix, films and so on, Samsung, you know, smartphones and all those good things. But few people around the world realize that South Korea is the world's eighth largest, biggest exporter of weapons. South Korea is a major producer and importer and exporter of arms. And South Korea has sold hundreds of South Korean-made tanks to Poland, for example, in recent years. So Ukraine, understandably, and the United States want South Korea to be more forthcoming in the provision of weapons and ammunition um, in addition to what South Korea has already done, which is economic and humanitarian aid. For Ukraine. And I think President Yoon has signaled on this visit so far to the United States, which is, you know, he's been accorded the highest honor of a, um, a state visit. It's only the second um, in the Biden administration. So I think President Yoon is trying to signal that he would be amenable to doing more. He, during his address to the joint meeting of Congress earlier, uh, today, on the 27th, uh, President Yoon did say that Russia's war in Ukraine is, quote, a violation of international law and any attempt by Russia to, quote, change the status quo with force is simply wrong. He condemns the Russian invasion, he said. So I think, you know, I think it makes sense for President Yoon not to be so explicit during his U.S. visit on how much further his nation might do, his administration, to help Ukraine. But I think those signals are out there. And in terms of humanitarian aid to Ukraine, uh, South Korea has already sent something like $230 million worth. That's right, yes. Which you could say is not enough, or, it's, or you might say it's generous, but South Korea clearly can and should do more. It's, South Korea is a rich country. It's the world's 10th or 11th largest economy. Again, a major producer of weapons, a major ally of the United States, uh, stands for freedom, which is a point that President Yoon emphasized over and over again during his address to Congress. So South Korea is poised and, I think, incentivized to do more. So... Let's talk about your new book out soon, The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo-jong, the most powerful woman in North Korea. And of course, we have seen pictures of her, and she's apparently appeared more often in public in uh, North Korea. 
we've also been speculating about the health of Kim Jong-un, who seems to have lost a lot of weight. So what exactly is her role? Well, um, I seek your understanding and our listeners' forgiveness. I'm contractually bound not to talk about the contents, but I will say that I've been fascinated by this figure, a young North Korean and very powerful woman who charmed South Korea and much of the world when she visited South Korea as uh, the lead delegate of the North Korean delegation on on the day, actually, of the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics that South Korea hosted back in February 2018. She didn't do much. She just showed up, you know, smiled a little, scowled a little, and it seemed that the entire nation and perhaps even beyond much of the region fell in love with her. Um, you know, so she's an interesting figure. And I've noticed that with the onset of the pandemic in early 2020, as of early March, well, on March 3rd, she issued her first written statement. And since then, there have been 30 written statements, and they are usually very rude, sarcastic, and directed at the South Korean leader uh, and President Trump as well, and President Biden. So it's clear that Kim Jong-un To me, it's clear that Kim Jong-un had never faced an existential threat like the pandemic, which, unlike a famine, during which very few, if any, powerful, wealthy people go hungry, but during a pandemic, which is an an invisible threat, you know, uh, the virus can kill princes and paupers alike. So I think Kim Jong-un was in elevating his sister's role uh, openly. He was trying to take out a life insurance, you know, who better than his trusted sister to take care of his family, his wife and young children, should he become incapacitated? So we've never seen a nuclear despotess, a woman with her finger on the nuclear button. And she's emphasized this quite often as of April last year. We've never seen such a powerful woman who has so much power uh, and who has threatened, issued several threats already of her right, her nation's right to preemptively nuke South Korea. So she's a dangerous figure. But does she and her brother know what a basket case North Korea is compared to South Korea? I mean, you just mentioned how it's, what is it, the 10th richest economy in the world? Yes, and conservatively speaking, 50 times richer than the backward North. Nowhere else in the world do you see such income disparity between two neighboring states. But do they get it? Do they know it? Do they, does it? Does it bother them? I don't think so. Um, you know, their father presided over an unprecedented phenomenon in world history. North Korea suffered a famine in the mid-90s to the late 90s. And this was the first ever instance of a famine taking place in an industrialized, urbanized, literate economy, literate society. I think it will forever remain the first and only such case. You know, famines have been with us all throughout history and famine-like conditions go on today in many parts of the world. But usually uh, it is an agrarian economy, pre-industrial agriculture economy where adult illiteracy is quite high, whereas North Korea achieved industrialization even before South Korea did uh, in the 60s. And there is no illiteracy in North Korea. Yet, Kim Jong-il, the father of Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong, did nothing really. In fact, he, you know, used the famine as a shield and a spear with which to extort more food aid, some of which, which, which he sold to other countries and prevented the delivery of international food aid to certain regions of his nation, letting them just, um, you know, fend for themselves. So this tragedy, the famine um, of the 90s, I think is a lesson on the duo, the brother and sister co-leaders today, that, well, you know, let the people die and let's extort the the outside world to uh, pay up and give us more food and aid when they feel like it. So far, they've uh, resisted all offers of COVID and food aid, but I think they're going to soon come around to that. So I don't think they really care about uh, human lives uh, inside their own country or anywhere else, as long as the Pyongyang elites, their own cronies, are okay and you know satisfied, and as long as they have their access to that lavish lifestyle that they live, then I don't think 
the lot of the rest of the population is a priority. Right, but in the last couple of minutes, we know that China and Russia protect North Korea, particularly on the UN Security Council, and China clearly protects it, keeps it going in many ways. Um, But at the same time, South Korea has a lot of trade with China, and according to a recent poll, 80% of South Koreans feel that their economy and trading with China and security with the US should be pursued at the same time. Right, and historically, South Korean administrations over the past 20 years have been somewhat, um, well, maybe deferential is not the right word, but very um, wary of afraid of displeasing China, which is South Korea's by far biggest trade partner. So, you know, while economic interests are very important, um, historically, um, Yoon's, President Yoon's predecessors have been very shy uh, when it comes to China. But Yoon is the first person, even when he was a candidate, to say that he will stand up to China, that he is all for freedom of navigation and territorial integrity uh, around the Taiwan Strait. And um, on the eve of his visit to the United States this week, President Yoon said something that really irked the Chinese, which is that he stands against any attempt to change the status quo by the use of force, including in the Taiwan Strait. So these are all welcome signals to the Biden administration. And I think there is bipartisan consensus in Washington today that the U.S. wants to and needs to stand up to China. So just in the last minute, it's reasonable to assume, surely, that with this Washington declaration coming out of the White House with President Biden and President Yoon of South Korea uh, involving uh, more cooperation on nuclear defense against North Korea, it's reasonable to assume that the North Koreans are going to do something provocative, right? Um, I think that's a reasonable assumption. North Korea has been uh, threatening to launch a satellite in space, a spy satellite, and that requires, of course, long-range ballistic missile technology. And the Washington Declaration would have displeased Pyongyang, as it has already China. China, as expected, issued a statement saying that um, that the Korean Peninsula issue is a serious, complex issue, and we have to resolve it through dialogue. And this has been the Chinese mantra over the past three decades, and kind of pointed the finger at the United States and South Korea, saying no one should escalate the rhetoric and trump up the threat in the region, referring to North Korea, as if North Korea is a passive player. So yes, North Korea is will use this meeting, summit meeting, and the declaration as a pretext to do what it was planning to do anyway, and then blame the other side. Well, Sung Yoon Lee, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Sung Yoon Lee, who's a professor in international affairs at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, a National Asia Research Fellow and Faculty Associate at the U.S.-Japan Program at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. He's testified as an expert witness in the United States House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee hearings on North Korean policy, and his forthcoming book out soon is The Sister, The Extraordinary Story of Kim Yo-jong the most powerful woman in North Korea. And he has an article of the conversation, U.S.-South Korea nuclear weapons deal, what you need to know. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing how serious China's commitment is to get Russia to the negotiating table and how long the war in Ukraine will go on short of a decisive blow to Russia's already weakened military from the upcoming Ukrainian offensive. us 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. His latest book is The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And he has an article to Foreign Affairs, How China Could Save Putin's War in Ukraine, The Logic and Consequences of Chinese Military Support for Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Very nice to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And I want to talk to you, obviously, about your Foreign Affairs article. But before we do that, yesterday... There was a, a phone call from President Xi of China uh, to President Zelensky, which Zelensky described as a long and meaningful conversation in which Xi Jinping apparently pledged that China would remain neutral in the conflict. And she said that Beijing, quote, will neither watch the fire from the other side nor add fuel to the fire, let alone take advantage of the crisis to profit. So what do you think of those assurances? Well, uh, you know, I think it makes perfect sense for Zelensky to speak with with Xi. It's a, uh, a phone call that actually Zelensky has been pressuring Beijing uh, to have. So I think it's a conduit. Uh, and in a way, it's a conversation about Ukraine that is not putting Russia in the driver's seat. And I think the optics of that are useful for Ukraine. But beyond that, there's not a great deal of credibility to what she says. He's been siding very explicitly with Russia, promised no limits partnership or friendship to Russia shortly before the war and has repeated a lot of Russian talking points on NATO and uh, the culpability of the West for the for the war. So I think China is a very long way from playing a neutral or mediating role in the conflict, uh, and uh, I'm quite sure that President Zelensky is aware of that. So you don't think, as some people do, that this phone call from Xi was a way to do damage control from China's ambassador to France, uh, one of these wolf warrior di- diplomats who made uh, remarks suggesting that parroting Putin, in effect, saying that Ukraine wasn't a real country? Yes, and I think even beyond that, the Chinese ambassador said that uh, the Baltic states didn't enjoy proper sovereignty, of course, both you know, three states that are EU members and NATO members. So that was very vociferously uh, objected to on the part of uh, a lot of different European countries. It may in part have been uh, a bit of damage control. I think in the scheme of things, China very much needs to maintain its access to Europe and its access to European markets. So there's a point beyond which China cannot go in support of Russia uh, in the war. And I guess it's exploring uh, as to where exactly that point uh, is It's pretty close to Russia, uh, but it's trying to keep Europe not quite on China's side, uh, but trying to prevent Europe from being, you know, sort of deeply alienated from China uh, and opposed to China. So it's an interesting balancing game that China is playing, and it seems to me that China is doing it relatively effectively. Well, at the end of the, the recent meeting in the Kremlin between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, as Putin saw him off, Xi Jinping said that change is coming that hasn't happened in 100 years, and we are driving this change together. So those are pretty ambitious words beyond the non-limits partnership. Yeah, I mean, those are very grandiose words, and I think this is certainly a Russian and a Chinese narrative that it's a new world, that there's a new international order taking shape, and it's one in which Europe and the United States are becoming increasingly peripheral, uh, and there's obvious PR value to that narrative, but uh, it's it's an overstatement of the uh, of the case. You know, the Chinese rhetoric about this uh, about this conflict is very interesting to trace. Uh, their actions often go in a somewhat different direction. Well, do you think it was a mistake not to frame it from the beginning as a, as an issue of sovereignty as opposed to a struggle for democracy? You're speaking about here, in this case, about Western policy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, perhaps, but I don't think that China is going to be persuaded by anything that the West says about the conflict. I think China has taken a fairly clear position as effectively pro-Russian, but you know, not trying to overdo it. I think where Western messaging hasn't worked well, and here I think China is 
making some pretty considerable advance, advances is in the so-called global south, and their Western claims about democracy have been uh, pretty widely rebuffed, uh, and China is trying to position itself as the responsible actor and the mediator. So, yes, to that degree, I think uh, messages about sovereignty and independence of Ukraine from the beginning might have been more uh, effective. It is possible that Russia could lose the battlefield war, but in some sense, China could win the peace or China could win the global narrative about the war, uh, which would be a pretty big setback for the West, if true. So let's talk about the possibility then of Ukraine winning. What we're hearing, though, from the Ukrainians picking on the front lines is that they're running out of ammunition, that there's so much in the pipeline, it's been dribbling in. The West and NATO and the US have been talking a good game, but not necessarily delivering. And we know that in an offensive, you take more casualties than you do in a defensive position. So what's your sense of whether this new offensive is going to work? There's already suggestions that you're hearing from Washington saying that it won't do the job, whatever the job is. Well, this is the million-dollar question. Ian, it makes a lot of sense for Ukraine uh, to talk down its offensive. It might be a way of getting more aid and assistance from the West. And in some ways, it could be a way to lower Russian expectations and therefore gain the advantage of surprise in the counteroffensive whenever it comes. So I wouldn't take at face value these claims about the Ukrainian military being undersupplied. They could prove to be true. But my guess is that Ukraine will make some meaningful advances in the coming months, probably not enough to change the fundamental calculus uh, of the war, but uh, I suspect that they're underplaying their hand uh, in order to to exceed expectations. You know, it's a political game that Ukraine has to play with the counteroffensive, and so managing expectations is probably as important uh, as what's going to happen on the battlefield. And, I mean, there's been some caution all along my understanding is that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is it's always been pretty cautious and not very concerned about provoking Putin. And on the other hand, one gets the impression that Putin is using nuclear threats as a kind of way to weaken the resolve of both NATO and the United States. Maybe these threats are hollow. Is there any sense that the U.S. does not want Ukraine to succeed too much in this offensive? In other words, say, take Crimea and humiliate Putin and therefore put Putin in a state of mind where he may may do something reckless? I don't think that there are huge concerns in Washington. I think Crimea, for Ukraine to take Crimea, which is uh, a massive uh, territory with some two million people on it, I think that that's pretty far-fetched at the moment. I don't think that that's a real concern in Washington. Uh, and I think some of the nuclear fears that were very prominent in the fall of 2022 have receded a bit in part because of messaging from Beijing about um, China not wanting this conflict to turn to turn nuclear. I think where the U.S. is concerned, but I don't think that they have great worries here, is that they don't want the weapons that they provide uh, to Ukraine to be used uh, on Russian territory uh, in a way that would alter the dynamic of the war. And I think so far, with a few exceptions, Ukraine has... Uh, has has respected that limitation uh, that's been imposed upon it. So as long as Crimea wouldn't fall overnight, as long as the war wouldn't spread to Russian territory, I think any battlefield success that Ukraine has will be very much welcomed in Washington. And is it possible then that they could trade territory for peace? In other words, if taking Crimea is too much, then what could they achieve in terms of a swap? If that's not that Zelensky's ever agreed to that, he's a maximalist in terms of wanting to recapture all of the territory. But if that's not realistic, is there any formula you think that could work? No, I don't think that there's a formula that can work. I mean, looking at things from the Ukrainian side, they, they can't forget that the 2022 invasion was staged in part from from Crimea. So Crimea is a very, very hard piece of territory for Ukraine to yield uh, to Russia. And also there's a real value to pinning Russian soldiers in Crimea. Even if there's not an offensive, even if Crimea is not going to be directly under threat, you would want the Russians to worry about that so that they keep a portion of their military there and not use it elsewhere in Ukraine. So I think that there's no incentive on the Ukrainian side to make a deal with Crimea. Likewise, on the Russian side, um, obviously, 
Russia would like to get Crimea formally from Ukraine, but I think Russia has attached itself to a much larger pro- uh, project, the annexation of four regions of Ukraine, which Russia is very far from doing militarily. But for Putin to back up on those promises, he did announce in uh, September, October of 2022 that he had annexed a lot of Ukrainian territory. And for him to wind that back would be quite difficult. So I think as long as those conditions remain in place on both sides, you don't have any material for a negotiated settlement. So are you talking about a stalemate? And could the stalemate last all the way through the 2024 presidential elections? I think I wouldn't use the word stalemate. I think it will be an active conflict for a long time to come with a fluid line of, uh, of contact between Ukraine and Russia and perhaps some big changes, not excluding an invasion of Ukraine from the north, a reinvasion uh, by Russia two, three, four years from now, uh, and not excluding big battlefield advances on the part of uh, of Ukraine. So I think it's not likely to be a stalemate because both armies are still going at it, uh, and the capacity and the willpower uh, is still there. So I think we'll have a real war in our hands for, the, for, for years, if not for decades to come. So if there's not a knockout blow in this coming offensive in, in the next couple of months, then the alternative for Ukraine is to have a, have a long war, which is advantageous to Putin, isn't it? He's got more manpower and more resources. And the people that are supplying him are on both on the US side and on the NATO side, they're finding out that the factories can't produce the shells for the howitzers fast enough, etc. And, and even NATO inventories are being depleted. So a long war, doesn't it, because of the population disparity and, and industrial base, doesn't it favor Russia? Maybe, but uh, the coalition behind Ukraine is really very extensive. There's true depth there, and I think that um, I wouldn't want to go beyond my capacity of knowledge here in terms of armaments production uh, and all of that. That there are difficulties, but you know, European countries may make some progress in that regard. Uh, and the flow of sophisticated weaponry into Ukraine has only been increasing over the last 14 months. It's one after another of of you know, sort of more and more advanced weapon systems that are being given to Ukraine. So yes, there are shortages here and there, uh, but in many ways, Ukraine is gaining uh, in military strength. Uh, and you know, the problems on the Russian side are also pretty considerable when you try to balance this equation. Yes, Russia is the much bigger economy and the much bigger population, but for them to rebuild an army that has been, in many respects, destroyed, you know, both in its human side and in its materiel is going to take a long, long time. So Russia will keep at it for a long time. Uh, but for them to be an effective fighting force capable of going on the offensive, that may not be the case this year. It may not be the case next year. It may not be the case the year after. So if we think in terms of decades, I have some of the structures favor, uh, favor Russia. But even there, I'm not quite sure. So I think it's hard to come to a clear cut. Uh, conclusion. It's it's not a celebratory point I'm making. It's in a way a tragic point. The war could last uh, as long as I'm predicting it will, but uh, I think it can probably be sustained on both sides. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, absorbing that depressing but I think realistic scenario, doesn't it uh, again indicate that the West and NATO should double down and do everything they can to help the Ukrainians in some kind of decisive blow that will bring Putin to his senses or perhaps have him deposed, although that's in itself a scary prospect because you've got people like Patrushev and Prigozhin and the nationalists, perhaps. In other words, we may find out that as bad as Putin is, there are worse people waiting in the wings. I I would take a somewhat different uh, approach in terms of what the West should do. I don't know if a knockout blow is is possible uh, for some of the reasons that you've mentioned that Ukraine does face uh, shortages and the Russian adversary is a very formidable one. So yes, even if there would be big defeats in the Donbass, it doesn't mean that Russia would be out of commission. So I don't know if that's an achievable objective. And as you say, anything that would destabilize Russia politically is just uh, given that Russia is a nuclear state and <laughs> there are these you know, sort of dubious characters waiting in the wings. Is that that's a pretty scary proposition? So I would take a more moderate view, in a way, uh, a more prosaic view, 
and say Western policy should be very much like containment during the Cold War. You need to impress upon Russia the futility of its war. We're not going to persuade Russia with words about that. But if they feel that futility on the battlefield, you know, this spring, this summer, for one year, for two years, for three years to come, I think that that could have political repercussions that are not necessarily revolution or regime change in Russia, but that sort of turn Russian enthusiasm for the war into something much more like frustration uh, and maybe impatience to come to some kind of conclusion. But I think we need to contain <laughs> the Russian military to the best of our abilities with uh, our partner in Ukraine and in a sense hope for the best. But I think it will demand a lot of patience. I don't think a knockout blow uh, is really within our quiver of possibilities. But just in closing, is there any sense in Russia itself amongst the elite or even the Siloviki that this is not going well for Russia internationally? I mean, the, the, having the, the chairmanship of the uh, Security Council indicates the farcical and embarrassingly ostracized nature of Russia's position, along with the fact that uh, Putin has been indicted by the International Criminal Court. I don't think that that registers all that deeply in Russia. I think that, that that's seen as sort of Western gamesmanship, and the sanctions have not been particularly uh, effective so far in changing the political calculus in the Kremlin. But I think that there are many people in the elite, perhaps including Putin himself, who knows, who understand that this war is going very, very badly for for Russia. Now, you can't say that officially, you can't say that publicly. There are questions of morale. There's the kind of regime that Russia is, a highly repressive dictatorship where those who question the war are harshly punished. So there's a kind of uh, coercive power in Russia that keeps people in line. Uh, but the elite is intelligent enough and well aware enough to to see that this war is something of a disaster, if not a catastrophe for Russia. Whether that will make them move against Putin or weaken Putin over time is anybody's guess. But the discontent is certainly there. And you've seen rumblings on social media from Prigozhin in the last couple of days about uh, his own frustration with the war. So it's it's evident, uh, and it will play a role, but it's probably still early days in uh, the vulnerabilities that Putin has imposed upon himself by this mad and, and, and disastrous war. Well, Michael Kimmich, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been a great pleasure, as ever, Ian. Well, thank you, Michael. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmich, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And his latest book is The Abandonment of the West, A History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, How China Could Save Putin's War on Ukraine, The Logic and Consequences of Chinese Military Support for Russia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.